You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. Amen. It is a blessing to be here with you all uh, this morning. Uh, as you may be able to tell, we're taking a little bit of a pivot out of our uh, sermon series on the book of Acts, and I'll try to explain a little bit why uh, in a second. So we, if you were with us last week as we were working through the book of Acts, uh, we met uh, an Ethiopian eunuch uh, that Philip encountered on the way, uh, on the road to Gaza, likely going back to Ethiopia. This Ethiopian eunuch is reading in Isaiah 53 about this servant of God who's going to come and suffer. And this eunuch couldn't understand it. He was like, who, who is this prophet Isaiah talking about? Who was he referring to? And so Philip, one of the leaders in the church at that time, explained to him who this Jesus was using the scriptures. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been talking a lot about what it looks like for us to faithfully make Christ known to those who are around us. It's obviously a huge theme in the book of Acts. We're going to take a little bit of a pivot and focus most of our attention on for a few weeks coming up here and even the following sermon series after Easter on knowing the one that we are making known. Who is he? And one of the things we see specifically in the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading on his way back likely to Ethiopia is that he was a suffering servant. So he was a servant of God. He was coming to establish his, his kingdom, but yet he did it in a way that was unexpected. He, he did it through his suffering. And today, up and through Easter, we'll be looking at this, this concept, this reality, this truth that we find in Scripture, that Jesus, the Savior of the world, who came to establish his kingdom, that's going to do away with the kingdom of darkness, he didn't do it in an expected way, but rather through his own suffering. So as we focus on knowing the one that we've been talking about making known, let's begin Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? So James and John, they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus to grant their request without ever saying what the request is. It's like if a child goes to a parent and asks, Will you give me permission to do something I want to do? And Jesus is like, Well, what do you want to do? Tell me what you, what you want. Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Excuse me. Now, when Matthew records this conversation, he includes that they are asking about sitting at his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom. So the picture is when Jesus is reigning, they know at this point that Jesus is coming to reign. He's, he's, the, he's the promised Messiah, right? Peter has already professed him to be the Christ at this point. And they're saying, so Jesus, when you come... To do that, or when you're actually in your kingdom, when you're actually on the throne, put one of us at your right hand, put one of us at your left hand. But bestow on us these positions of esteem and honor. And before we move forward, I want to make sure we have an understanding of Jesus' kingdom and the glory um, that they're talking about. Obviously, these would have been uh, positions of great esteem and honor, but their belief, and a lot of the Jews' belief, was that Jesus' kingdom was going to come and do away with the oppressive kingdom of Rome. So this is an earthly, or you might say worldly kingdom that they are referring to and that they're talking about, and they want these positions of, of esteem in that kingdom. But Jesus, instead of answering their question, Jesus begins to lead them to what they really need to understand. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
It's one thing, obviously, if you have a question, you know you don't know the answer to the question. Jesus was saying, you don't even understand the question that you're asking. You don't know what you're actually asking me to do for you. You, know, you don't even realize exactly what you're asking me to do. They have some wrong expectations of Jesus and his kingdom, and those wrong expectations are causing them to ask for things when they don't know what they're asking for. I'll give you an example. I was preaching at a college ministry uh, a few years ago, and one of the uh, students that was in the college ministry um, was just in a conversation near me. She kept talking about how she was just looking forward to be able to have, uh, have a family, have a child, or she kept saying having a baby uh, at some point in the future. And, and obviously, there's nothing wrong with, with, with having a baby. Children are a blessing from the Lord and all that. But I just noticed as she was talking about what she was looking forward to, everything she mentioned was specifically having a baby or enjoying a baby and all the cuddling stages and all that. And so I said to her, do you want a teenager also? Because that baby's going to be a teenager longer than they're going to be a baby. And she was like, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't really considered it that way. In my mind, I was like, I don't know if you know what you're trying to get into, actually. I don't know if you understand actually what you are asking, is what I was saying to her. She seemed very puzzled at the time, but later thanked me for a little bit of a reality check. Jesus is saying to these disciples, you don't know what you're asking for. And he's going to give them a reality check, as we will see in, verses th- in the rest of verse 38 and verse 39. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Let me be honest, I'm kind of proud of myself for not stumbling over those words. Every time I read it to myself, I kept messing up. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able And then Jesus said to them, we'll get into what Jesus said a little bit later. So just to make sure we understand the sequence, they say, hey, Jesus, will you, are we able to be at your left hand or your right hand when you're in your kingdom, when you're in your throne, in your glory? And Jesus says, are you willing to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, it's likely that this cup that Jesus is talking about is referring to the suffering that he's going to endure on the cross as he's paying the penalty for sin. Quick note, a lot of people believe the cup is specifically only referring to the wrath of God. I don't think it's actually that um, specific. I think it's the suffering in general that he goes through. And this is why, and we'll see in a minute, he, he actually tells the, the disciples, James and John, that they will drink from the same cup as him. But also we see he says, with the baptism, be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So think more about the, 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 the term that he is using, not what we know as baptism today in the church, but the term means to be immersed in something. He's saying, are you willing to be immersed in what I am about to be immersed in when I suffer for this kingdom that you want to be in a position of honor in? So they say to Jesus, can we sit in this position of honor? And Jesus says, can you descend into suffering with me? They want to be elevated. They want to be esteemed. Jesus says, can you sacrifice the way that I sacrifice? They don't know what they are asking for, so Jesus is pointing them to the part of their question that they're unaware of and that they're ignorant to. Let's keep reading. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So Jesus is referring to the fact that those disciples will suffer for the kingdom. That is something that they are going to do. Verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus is likely saying that is for the Father to give those positions to is likely what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus knows that these apostles are going to be suffering for the kingdom. Most of the apostles were martyred for their proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, that he was raised from the dead, sent by God to save humanity. And Jesus lets them know that they will indeed suffer. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant 
at James and John. I'm not to say that it was mad, indignant at James and John. The other disciples don't like how James and John are trying to just ask Jesus for these positions of honor. It's likely that they wanted the same type of positions. There's this tension that has taken place now. They now have a problem with each other. I believe that the implication here is that they all want those positions of honor and prestige, that they desire the same thing that James and John were bold enough to ask about. It's likely that they're letting them know that it seems unfair that they're trying to jump in front of them. In fact, that word indignant, it doesn't just mean to be mad. It means to, to, perceive, to be angry or upset because you perceive something to be unfair. They thought it was unfair that James and John were seeking to be in these positions, these places of, of status and esteem. Continue on verse 42. Jesus is about to use this as a teachable moment for all of them, not just James and John. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." So in verse 42, we started to point out how other rulers of this world, particularly at that time, they would, they would lord their authority over others. That word lord means to hold in subjection. It means to subdue. It means to master someone. He's saying that often those that are great in the world today or in the world at that time would execute their authority in a way over those that they had where it was mastering them. It was to subdue them. And then he gives them a charge in verse 43 when he says that this shouldn't be the case among those in the kingdom. It means to show them specifically how these things are different in the kingdom. And what I love about the way that he explains this is that he, he, he explains the difference between his kingdom and worldly kingdoms. And I, uh, what I should say is I love it because this greatly affects the way that I parent. This, the way Jesus responds greatly affects the way that I uh, look at or, or consider someone for leadership roles within the church. And it also greatly informs the way that I try to lead our church as pastor here at Midtown Tuna. So remember that he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Hear me on this. This is a very important distinction. Jesus does not tell them to stop trying to be great. He does not caution them or warn them about trying to be great. He does not say, wait a minute now, why are y'all so worried about trying to be great? You need to practice a little bit of humility here. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, he says, anyone here that wants to be great, let me show you how to actually do it. Let me show you how to actually go about being great. You do it by being a servant. So I said a little bit earlier, this actually informs the way that I parent. And I was having a conversation with uh, two of my children. I believe this was uh, within the last week or so. And I was telling them that when, when you're going into this space where you're going to be a student, there's going to be a teacher there, there's going to be other students there, I want you to not only behave, but if there's any type of distraction going on, I want you to try to shut down that distraction for what's going on. I told him it would be wrong for you to do anything that's distracting. It would be neutral for you to not do anything that's distracting when, when someone else is doing something that's distracting for the teaching that's going on. But it would be great of you to actually serve everyone there by trying to to put it into whatever is causing a distraction in that space. And what I said to them was, and the reason I'm holding you to such a high standard is because I've seen greatness in you. 
because I know that you're actually able to be great. And I told them, if you're talking, if you're talking about a basketball player who is great, you wouldn't expect them to, to play in a way that's average. And I said, and I don't expect average out of you because I know there's greatness in you and I know that you can be grace. What am I doing? I'm applying the fact that Jesus says to his disciples, he is, he is calling them, he is, he is allowing them, showing them what it is to truly be great. I would say I try to do the same thing when uh, observing and looking at leaders in our church as well. It's like, I know you have a desire to serve, but, but are you actually also able to serve with a good attitude when it's something that you don't want to do? Because that's what a servant is to do, right? A servant is someone who sees themselves as playing the role of serving in whatever, whatever that looks like. So, so I, one of the observations that I make, okay, is this somebody who is just interested in doing things that they enjoy, or is this actually a servant? Is this someone who is truly great? And my hope and desire as a pastor is that I would consistently model that same kind of servant leadership. And I want to hone in a little bit on the term that's translated slave in verse 44. It's the Greek word doulos or doulos. Some translate this word as slave or some translate it servant. Some translate it as bond servant. This was someone in their society, either voluntarily or involuntary, bound to a life of service of others. Sometimes it was lifelong. Sometimes it was temporary. But this is what they did day in and day out. They saw themselves as someone who had the purpose of serving others. And this is the role in society that Jesus points to when he's instructing them on greatness, on what it is to truly be great. And he's making a contrast here between worldly kingdoms and his kingdoms. He says those that are, that are great have achieved their greatness by being good at making others subject to them. Talking about in worldly kingdoms, they've become great, so to speak, by being good at making others subject to them by mastering others. And Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, those that are great, they achieve greatness by making themselves subject to the needs and desires of others. He says it's completely upside down. That the way you become great in my kingdom is by, by becoming this bond servant of all. And that is actually how you achieve greatness. The disciples, specifically James and John, weren't pursuing, were wanting to pursue greatness through this political power and status, but that's just not always, that's not always how it looks for us. Maybe I'll say it that way. They were looking for this kind of political power and status. Sometimes I will say we pursue greatness primarily through our achievements. For example, some of us feel like we won't be content unless we reach the next level in our career or maybe in our academic achievements. So we're always looking to climb and get the next promotion, and you feel like it's not enough for you if you don't have this title, or maybe if you don't work for this certain type of company, or whatever your marker is for greatness. We, we achieve, or we, we try, to, try to achieve greatness through the different achievements that we have. Now, I want to I be very, very clear. There's nothing wrong with progressing financially. There's nothing wrong with progressing in your career. Those are amazing things. I think it's beneficial uh, that in our world, if Christians are at every level of leadership throughout our society, and I believe that is a very beneficial thing. But with that said, there are a lot of Christians that sacrifice very important and very necessary things because they have made an idol out of whatever their next goal is. Sometimes we sacrifice time with our families. Sometimes we sacrifice, I should say, time serving our families or time serving in and within our church and throughout our church. Sometimes we, we sacrifice our own emotional and physical and mental health because we believe we have to achieve in this, at this certain level. 
We, we can't see ourselves as worthwhile unless we are, we are ascending, unless we are climbing to that next goal of achievement that we have. Because deep down, we believe that that sense of prestige and honor that we'll feel from those achievements will cause us to be content. I remember when Midtown Two Nights was first starting, starting a church plan, you got all these questions, what's it going to be, How's, what's it going to be like, is it going to grow? I remember having this thought, I was like, man, if we can get to 50 people, I'll be good. I'll just be straight. I don't really feel comfortable with where we're at right now, but if we get to 50, man, we'll be good. Got to 50 people. Man, that other church plan, I know, got 75 people. <laughs> got a clean 75 every Sunday. You know, we'd really be good if we was at 75. Then I think, I think I'd be content. I feel like, okay, we're here now. We're actually a legitimate church. Got to 75. Man, but you're really not there if you're not at 100, right? You're really not there if there's not 100 people involved in some degree in your church. I've had conversations with people before that look down on themselves because they haven't gotten the degree that they expected to have at this point. They feel like they're less than others who are their age and maybe have the degree that they want. Or maybe they got let go from a job, so instead of climbing, they went the other way, and it's so overwhelmingly discouraging for them. They start to doubt who they are, who they know themselves to be. Whether they realize it or not, their misunderstanding of greatness is leading them to deep turmoil in their soul. Deep turmoil. Here's one way you can determine whether or not we have an accurate view of greatness. If you were to take a moment and think back over your life, asking this question, what were my moments of greatness? What were the moments where I was the greatest, when I was really doing it? What have I done that would be considered great? What type of things would come into your mind? Would it be all achievement stuff? Would it be all things that you did that maybe helped show to yourself or maybe to others, like how smart you are, or how accomplished you are, or how competent you are? What would come to your mind if you think about things in your life that you would consider great? And if it's not the times that you have humbly served others, then you actually don't believe Jesus. You actually don't think he's right. You think, a great man, you th you think greatness should be evaluated in terms of what you have accomplished. And Jesus is saying, no, that's a worldly way of looking at it. You understand greatness by how you serve others. Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You've been trained and taught by this world about greatness instead of being trained and taught by the word about greatness. Or maybe for you, it's not that you're looking for prestige and honor and academic or career success. Maybe you look at your followers and likes on social media posts, and you compare them to the followers and likes of others. And you feel like you gain some type of prestige or, or consider yourself more successful by how many people like what you post on social media. So then here's how you know if you're doing that. Because do you, if you feel like you are less than someone else who gets more likes or more follows, then you have it twisted. You've actually reduced how you understand yourself, how you understand how great you are, to how someone responds to something you post on the internet. We have come to believe and ascribe to the world's views of greatness. We have reduced our value down to how many people respond to us on social media the way we want them to. Ascribing to worldly definition of greatness is leading us to give our lives to something as trivial and meaningless as the fickle esteem of people that we don't even know. But I'm here to tell you today that you were made for more. You were made for greater. 
God created you for more than this. The way to find true meaning and purpose in life is to see greatness as serving others. I want to look back at 43 through 45 real quick. He says, but it it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I hope you're blown away by those words. I want us to consider who is saying this, who is saying, I came to serve and not to be served. This is the greatest human to ever walk the earth. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the great I am himself saying, I came not to be served, but I came to serve. This is Jesus saying this. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he was not what they expected. Because he wasn't seeking greatness the way other kings were. He showed how great he was by taking the posture and the disposition of a servant, of a bond servant. He left the riches of heaven to be born out in the stable with the animals and was raised in a working class family that likely didn't have much. Why? Because he wasn't seeking prestige. He wasn't seeking fame, but he came to serve and not to be served. He is the only holy one. He ate with sinners and those... and. And those that other people would have stayed away from because of their reputation, why did he do this? Because he came to serve, not to be served. He is the creator of everything, including our bodies, but he allowed those he created to destroy his own body. Why? Because he came to serve and not to be served. He is the all-powerful giver of life, but he allowed sinful people to take his life. Why? Because he came to serve and not be served. He is the only one who doesn't deserve to be condemned before God because of sin, because he is the only one that is without sin. He was condemned on the cross for my sin and for your sin because he came not to be served, but he came to serve. This is the great I am we're talking about. I want you to consider how far he has descended. When so many in our world are trying to climb to this position of prestige or that position of prestige or this title or that title, he comes and descends to take on the form of a servant. This is why he is the greatest of all time. This is why his greatness is unmatched, because there is none like him, none who have served so much and so well and so faithfully and so many. And this is why he is so great in the kingdom. And I love how Philippians chapter 2 talks about him. Starting at verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He said he didn't cling to the privileges that came with his status level. He was willing to be treated as if he wasn't the king of kings and as if he wasn't the Lord of lords. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, saying, even though he was and is God, the being with greater status and more prestige and more worthy of honor than anyone else, he humbled himself and made himself a servant to us all. He wasn't trying to climb to a position of prestige. Instead, he descended to not just a position of a servant, but to the position and the place of a criminal dying on a cross. And in doing so, he shows how great he truly is. In doing so, he redefines for us what greatness really is. And I just want to encourage some of you because you're being great, and I don't even think you know it. 
I think there are Christians in this room, I think there are Christians tuning in with this online right now that because you have so ascribed to the world's view of greatness, there are things that you are doing that heaven would look down and say, that is greatness on display, but you don't even see it that way. You don't even see the work that God is doing in you to humble you and make you more like him, how you're growing in greatness in his kingdom because all you think about is your accomplishments and your failures and all you think about is is what you have done that others would esteem as great. I just want to encourage some of you for serving that friend that is grieving right now by checking on them and maybe bringing them a meal. That's greatness. I want to encourage some of you that are serving people in your life group through encouragement and prayer, serving children and families in our kid town ministry, or for some of us serving and caring for your parents as they are in need of service from you now, just as you were from them as you when you were younger. Maybe babysitting for parents that could use a break. Maybe serving your children day in and day out, tending to their needs. Serving your roommates maybe by cleaning and taking care of the space that you're in together. There are, there are ways that God is working in us, making us more like him, that heaven looks down and says, that's greatness right there. And what I desire for us as a church to do is that when we see others serving, when we see others serving in a way that is sacrificial, when they are willing to descend and say, you know what, I'm going to put the needs and the desires and the wants and the preferences of others above my own. My desire is that we would encourage each other in that and say, that's greatness right there. And say, I see you being great right now. That heaven is looking down and says, you are being great. Defining greatness the way that Jesus does leads us to invest our lives in things that matter instead of striving for some fleeting feeling of prestige and honor from the world. And verse 9 shows how God the Father responded to the greatness of Jesus that he showed during his service. Verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 reads, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's the cross before the crown. Jesus was first lifted up on the cross and spit on and mocked and despised. But one day in glory, every knee that stood against him in animosity will bow down to him in reverence. And every tongue that spoke ill of him in rejection of his purpose will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in recognition of his greatness. Because in the kingdom of God, it's the cross before the crown. And the same is true for you. And this is why the Apostle Paul has this to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 real quick. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So that's the suffering in the service of others that he's endured. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So that's a life lived of sacrifice in the service of others. And then here comes a reward in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's saying because of those things, because of this life of following Jesus, our our suffering servant savior, this life of following him and serving others. He says, because of that, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I got good news for you today as I close this sermon. Christian today, all and all through this life, God calls you to descend to a posture of a servant, to the disposition of a servant. But that's not just because he desires for you to be lowly and humiliated, but rather it's because he wants you, he wants to be the one that elevates you. He wants to be the one that honors you. He doesn't want you using all of your energy and all of your time striving to receive a fleeting honor from people on this earth. But he's saying, no, when I come back and make all things right, I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to honor you and I'm going to 
crown you and every bit of sacrifice and service that you've ever engaged in will be worth it in that moment. It's not just that he wants us to be low, it's that he wants to be the one that exalts his people. He wants to be the one that raises his people up. He's telling you, don't worry about seeking your own honor. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to elevate you. But in this broken world full of sin, what this world needs is servants. We're in a world where the curse of sin has caused so much suffering and so much pain and so much lack and so much need for so many people that in this life, what he needs is service. But he's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And at that time, he will give all of his people a crown and we're going to reign with him forever. So in this life, we go low. In this life, we serve. In this life, we give of ourselves for the benefit of others, knowing that God is saying, I'm going to elevate you. We sacrifice for a few years in this life to go on for all eternity, to reign with him with a crown on our head. This is what he calls us to. And I say this because I don't want you to be discouraged in your service. I don't want you to be like the psalmist in Psalm 73 that is looking at the wicked and how they are prospering. And these it seems to be a little bit of jealousy. Like, God, I'm the one that's serving you. I'm the one that's sacrificing for you. Why are they seemingly ahead of me? But Jesus is the answer. We look to Jesus and say, no, no, just because you sacrifice doesn't mean you won't be elevated. Just because you take the position of a servant doesn't mean you won't reign with a crown on your head. See, worldly perspectives on greatness will have you giving your life to things that don't matter. Just to receive honor from people that is here today and gone tomorrow. But pursuing greatness in the kingdom of God will have you giving your life to benefit others and receive honor from the King of kings and the Lord of lords that is here today and will last forever. So my final encouragement to all of us is to go be great. Matter of fact, go be the greatest. Go be the greatest in your home, around your family or your roommates. Young people, go be the greatest in your school. Go be the greatest that is there serving as many people as you can, giving your life to the serving of others. Go be the greatest at your job, doing your job well and serving others, your coworkers and your employer while you're there. Go be the greatest in our communities serving for the common good of those around you. Sacrifice your time, sacrifice your energy, knowing that heaven looks down and says, that's what greatness looks like. Let us not seek greatness by trying to climb to a position of honor and prestige, but rather let us follow our Savior on the path to greatness, becoming servants now who will reign with him forever. Family, will you pray with me?